Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. The only podcast that's separating the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner. Here's a look at today's top stories. Gunmen storm an Ecuadorian television studio live on air. Houthi rebels launch one of their largest ever attacks in the Red Sea. AI-powered misinformation is labeled the highest short-term threat. Rishi Sunak announces a law to exonerate post office scandal victims. Hunter Biden appears at a House committee hearing to hold him in contempt. The SEC confirms its X account was hacked. A secret tunnel under a New York synagogue sparks chaos. Afghan girls are arrested for violating hijab rules. The World Health Organization is accused of putting women at risk with its trans self-ID plan. And scientists reveal a DNA test for detecting early stage cancer. Today's top story news from Ecuador as armed men attack a TV station amid nationwide gang violence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Associated Press, BBC News, Reuters, and Washington Post. One day after Ecuador President Daniel Noboa declared a state of emergency because of increased gang violence, armed men barged into a news station during a live broadcast on Tuesday and threatened staff, injuring one individual. Hooded gunmen rushed into the TC television studio during the mid-afternoon live news broadcast and held the staff hostage for 15 minutes. Viewers heard screams and gunshots before one man said, quote, We are on air, so you know that you cannot play with the mafia. According to Ecuador's national police, as of Wednesday, at least 70 alleged gang members have been arrested, 13 of whom were detained on the TV station's premises. Since the start of the 60-day emergency declaration, at least 10 people have been killed throughout the country. It is unknown if the TV station attack was related to the prison cell escape of Los Choneros gang leader Adolfo Macias Villamar, a.k.a. Fito, which prompted the emergency declaration. In addition to the TV station attack, at least seven police officers were kidnapped and several explosives were detonated at various locations around the country. Noboa revised the initial declaration and declared 22 gangs known for violence, including the Los Choneros organization, as terrorist organizations. Further to his declaration, Noboa said, quote, What we are living is proof that things need to change in our country. A time when drug traffickers, hitmen, and organized crime tells the government what to do is over. Eric, thank you for the facts on today's first story. We're going to start the narrative spins off with a narrative A provided by Barron's. Noboa is determined to end violent crime in Ecuador. He recently announced two new prisons will be built far away from the violent centers, where brutality has taken over in recent years. His long-term plan is to restore the country to the peace it saw before being overrun with drugs and violence from Colombia and Peru. We're going to check out Guardian, as they have narrative B for this story. The politicians and police of Ecuador have proven that they can't be trusted. Families and business owners have been left to fend for themselves against violent gangs that have infiltrated their neighborhoods. And people have been forced to pay off criminals with their meager earnings or they face violence. Noboa has little chance of rooting out crime, especially when the gangs are so deeply tied to systemic corruption. And our friends at the Bataculous Prediction community are going to share their opinion. They think that there's a 90% chance that the next president of Ecuador will remain in office through the end of their term. 
U.S. and U.K. forces shoot down over 20 Houthi drones and missiles. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Al Jazeera, The New Indian Express, Voice of America, Politico, and NavalNews.com. U.S. and U.K. naval forces downed over 20 drones and missiles fired by Yemen's Houthi rebels after the Iran-aligned militants launched one of their largest-ever attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, the U.S. Central Command said in a statement on Wednesday. The, quote, complex attack involved 18 Iranian-designed one-way drones, two anti-ship cruise missiles, and one anti-ship ballistic missile, the U.S. military said, adding that there were no casualties or damage in the 26th Houthi attack on commercial vessels in the Red Sea since November 19th. The Houthis did not officially claim responsibility for the attacks, which private intelligence firm Ambry said took place off the Yemeni port cities of Hodeida and Mocha, with the U.S. allied ships telling boats to, quote, proceed at maximum speed. However, an anonymous Houthi military official told Al Jazeera the group had attacked an Israeli-linked ship in the Red Sea, without giving further details. Meanwhile, the U.N. Security Council is set to vote on Wednesday on a U.S.-proposed resolution condemning the attacks by Yemen's Houthi rebels on commercial shipping in the Red Sea and calling for their immediate halt. The draft resolution states that the Houthi assaults are undermining navigational rights and freedoms as well as regional peace and security. This all follows a joint statement by the U.S. and its international allies last week warning the Houthis that they would face unspecified consequences if they kept threatening lives and disrupting commercial flows in the Bab el-Mandeb Strait, which links shipping routes between Europe and Asia. On December 18th, the U.S. formed a 22-nation international maritime coalition named Operation Prosperity Guardian in response to the escalating shipping crisis in the Red Sea. According to the U.S. Navy, the joint forces are taking a, quote, very active defensive role, with five coalition ships currently patrolling the southern Red Sea. Thanks, Adam, for the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Fox News. The Houthis' largest attack to date is more evidence of their extremist strategy of holding the global economy hostage in their fight against Israel. The downing of the Houthi drones and missiles proves the West's willingness to militarily defend freedom of navigation on one of the world's most vital waterways. Only the Tehran-controlled Houthis can prevent further escalation by immediately stopping their illegal attacks and releasing detained vessels and crews. Should they continue their attacks, the West will hold them responsible. That's going to be countered with the establishment critical narrative provided by responsible statecraft. By playing tough with the Houthis, Washington is risking a military spillover of the Israeli-Hamas war into Yemen. With its naval saber-rattling, the U.S. is only targeting the symptoms and not the cause of the escalating conflict, which lies with Israel and its indiscriminate killings in Gaza. This is also why the pointless Operation Prosperity Guardian is by no means a broad coalition of like-minded allies, but rather a U.S.-British hegemonic solo effort. European countries such as Spain have refused to join this excessive agenda of violence despite U.S. pleas for cooperation. The nerds from Metaculus have a nerd narrative. They say there's a 4% chance that a country's military spending will exceed that of the U.S. before 2030. According to a recent report from the World Economic Forum, AI misinformation and disinformation is the greatest short-term threat. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, the World Economic Forum, Euronews, CNBC, Guardian, and CNN. 
In its 2024 Global Risk Report, which surveyed over 1,400 experts and leaders, the World Economic Forum says the spread of artificial intelligence, or AI-related disinformation and misinformation, is the biggest threat over the next two years, particularly regarding upcoming elections in 75 countries, including the U.S., South Africa, Mexico, and India. The report argues that, quote, easy-to-use AI models have already enabled disinformation, including threats ranging from sophisticated voice cloning to counterfeit websites, while other global threats such as climate change were ranked higher in the 10-year outlook. AI-related falsified information ranked above the climate and societal polarization in the short term. This conclusion was reached with 53% labeling AI-generated false information as one of the greatest threats in the coming two years, while 46% said it could lead to more polarization, as well as rise in conflicts, particularly in countries with struggling economies. However, a much smaller 16% feared that governments would respond to this threat by way of censorship. Dis and misinformation were also ranked in the middle of the 10-year outlook, though it was placed behind extreme weather events, critical change to Earth systems, biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse, and natural resource shortages. Other short-term threats include cybersecurity, interstate armed conflict, lack of economic opportunity, inflation, and forced displacement, among others. While two-thirds of respondents expressed concern over climate change, there was a divide between private and public sector respondents concerning the urgency of the issue, with the private sector's opinion being that it poses a longer-term risk and government and civil society taking the opposite view. WEF Managing Director Sadia Zahidi attributed the report's predominantly negative concerns to, quote, economic hardship. However, while she noted that inequality is on the rise and some have seen a drop in, quote, living standards, she emphasized that the survey shouldn't be seen as a, quote, crystal ball with set predictions. Eric, thank you. The first spin is a narrative A provided by We Forum. The world is heading down a very dark, short, and long-term path. We all know that the climate catastrophes awaiting us years from now are something to watch out for. But in the meantime, if we want to have the tools to tackle such long-term threats, the international community must first deter the threats of AI and its ability to blur fact and fiction. Nefarious actors from governments, private organizations, and criminal groups will all seek to sway public opinion in the upcoming election years, which calls for immediate concrete defense mechanisms. Narrative B comes from Bloomberg. While the risks of AI shouldn't be ignored, this charged report, which echoes the fear-mongering of many leading experts, overblows the technology's role in the spread of false information, which has been an issue long before AI came to the forefront. Rather than pushing AI doomerism, there should be a focus on tackling the core issue that fuels mis- and disinformation. The erosion of the public's trust in foundational institutions that, once synonymous with impartiality, no longer are. And the nerds have an opinion. They think there's a 68% chance that a major cyber attack, virus, worm, or similar threat that utilizes large language models, or LLMs, in some significant way will occur before January 1st of 2025. And that's according to the Bataculous Prediction Community. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak advocates a law to exonerate post office workers. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Associated Press, Al Jazeera, Sky News, Bloomberg, and Guardian. 
UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said on Wednesday that the government will push new legislation to exonerate hundreds of post office managers who were wrongfully convicted of theft, fraud, and false accounting due to faulty software. From 1999 to 2015, more than 900 postal branch managers were convicted of financial crimes after post office computers incorrectly showed that funds were missing from branch locations. However, defective accounting software package Horizon caused the vast faulty reporting after it was implemented in post offices in the late 1990s. A total of 3,500 people were accused of defrauding the Postal Service, and around 230 workers were imprisoned while several even died from suicide amid the stress. In 2019, the UK High Court ruled that Horizon, manufactured by Japanese company Fujitsu, was responsible for the financial irregularities in computing systems. Sunak called the scandal, quote, one of the biggest miscarriages of justice and vowed to swiftly compensate the victims. In addition to exonerating postal workers, the new legislation will award £75,000, roughly U.S. dollars to the 555 workers who brought their grievances to the High Court in 2019. After they are exonerated, Confirmed victims are eligible for at least £600,000 or US$764,000 in compensation depending on their circumstances. 64% of the 980 postmasters who were convicted have already received £148,000,000 or US$188,000,000 in government settlements. However, Postal Services Minister Kevin Hollenrake said that only 93 have overturned their convictions. Meanwhile, a larger inquiry is investigating Fujitsu to determine if it is liable to pay compensation to the victims. A renewed spotlight was placed on the scandal after the outlet ITV debuted a drama called Mr. Bates vs. the Post Office last week. The four-part program focuses on the story of a postal office operator called Alan Bates, who led the fight against unjust prosecutions. Adam, thanks for presenting the facts. We begin our round of spins with The Guardian. They're going to give us the establishment critical narrative. It's hard to understate the profound impact of the UK post office scandal, and no amount of compensation can right the wrongs of the injustices that took place. Livelihoods and reputations were destroyed, and some victims tragically took their own lives. While the government finally took necessary action to expedite justice and begin compensating postal workers, we cannot allow corrupt corporate executives and bureaucrats to get off scot-free. Fujitsu is the first culprit who caused this perversion of justice to happen, and it must be held accountable for the destruction it caused. Post office leadership must also answer for their willingness to destroy employees without due process. The archive is going to counter that with a pro-establishment narrative. There's no denying that the post office scandal was a great miscarriage of justice, and Prime Minister Sunak took swift action to exonerate victims and advance compensation payments. Instead of prolonging the process, the government's legislation grants blanket exoneration, allowing for faster justice. While this issue is a stain on the UK justice system, the government is working diligently to remedy the situation, and it will ensure that all responsible parties will be held accountable. The past cannot be undone, but victims will be compensated for their suffering. Metaculus's nerd narrative says there's a 95% chance that the UK will have a Labour government before June of 2030. 
Hunter Biden in the news again as he makes a brief appearance at a House committee hearing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, CBS, New York Times, Fox News, and The Hill. On Wednesday, Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, appeared in a House Oversight and Accountability Committee room where members were drafting a resolution to hold him in contempt of Congress for failing to answer subpoenas for him to testify before the body. Accompanied by his lawyer, Abby Lowell, Biden stayed at the meeting for fewer than 30 minutes, watching several lawmakers speak. Republican Committee Chair Representative James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, called Biden out for, quote, blatantly defying two subpoenas, and Representative Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, the committee's Democratic ranking member, accused Comer of obstructing his own investigation in light of Biden's offer to testify in public. Biden walked out as Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, began to speak, calling him a coward who, quote, can't even face my words, she said. A similar markup was being done by the House Judiciary Committee on Tuesday. After the resolution advances out of committees, a vote on holding Biden in contempt could take place within days. Republicans in the House subpoenaed Hunter Biden as part of their impeachment inquiry into his father, a probe that's mostly based on their allegations of, quote, influence peddling as part of the son's foreign business deals while Joe Biden was serving as vice president. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. The Republicans are going to chime in with their narrative brought to us by PJ Media. Hunter Biden didn't present a motive for the stunt, but it sure seemed like he was trying to taunt the committee that's trying to hold him in contempt. The president's son had the look of a man who knows that even if Congress votes to hold him in contempt, his father's weaponized Department of Justice, which in the past has prosecuted Republicans for the same crime, will not hold him accountable. This was a shameful display. Follow that with a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. In an effort to distract from their ineptitude as legislators, House Republicans insist on carrying on with their fruitless search for a crime they can pin on the president. Hunter Biden has stated several times that he's willing to testify in public, but Republicans want him behind closed doors so they can spin his words into supposedly damning statements after the hearing. Even when the president's son shows up on Capitol Hill, all the GOP does is turn a congressional hearing into a kangaroo court and a circus. Eric, the nerds are going to chime in again. They think that there's a 25 percent chance that President Biden will be impeached by the U.S. House of Representatives. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The SEC confirms that their X account was hacked. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Twitter, BBC News and Yahoo Finance. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, or the SEC, on Tuesday confirmed that an unauthorized post on X, formerly known as Twitter, falsely claimed the approval of spot Bitcoin exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, which was the consequence of its account being compromised. The since-deleted post falsely announced that the SEC would follow Bitcoin ETFs on all registered national security exchanges while misquoting SEC Chair Gary Gentler as having stated the approval, quote, enhances market transparency and provides, quote, efficient access to digital asset investments within a regulated framework. The SEC announced it will cooperate with law enforcement's investigation of the matter. X's safety team responded to the incident by announcing it completed a preliminary investigation and concluded the incident wasn't the result of a breach of the social media platform security. Rather, X claimed 
that an unidentified individual gained access to a phone number associated with the SEC and the account lacked two-factor authentication. X further suggested that all users apply two-factor notifications. Following the false announcement, Bitcoin's value reached a high of approximately $47,900 before dropping to a low of $45,200, finishing the day at approximately $46,000. Thanks for those facts, Adam. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from LeapRate. This incident is unlikely to instill confidence in X's security. Elon Musk downsized the platform security team when he purchased X, and bad actors have found ways to make a negative impact by exploiting security weaknesses. The future of X is in doubt. The establishment critical narrative is provided by Proactive Investor. The SEC is at fault here, bizarrely failing to have two-factor authentication on X. This is an unforgivable mistake by the regulatory body that people are supposed to be able to trust to keep the U.S. market safe. This public embarrassment is reason to question whether the SEC is competent. The nerds at Metaculus say there's a 92% chance that the SEC will approve any Bitcoin ETF before January 20th, 2025. You, are you planning on cashing in all your Bitcoin, or are you just going to hang on to it through, through oh, this Oh, I, I, I accidentally spin it at that nickel arcade. I, I put them all into, in the, oh, into the yeah. um, arcade machines. I get it. Got yep. got my high scores on all the on all the Donkey Kongs, though. That and Asteroids. You did not. You did yeah, not. Turning our attention to New York City as tunnels under a synagogue have sparked chaos. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NBC, The Telegraph, New York Post, and NBC New York. New York City police have closed off the area around a highly revered synagogue after chaos between members of the Hasidic Jewish community broke out on Monday. The altercation was reportedly sparked by the temple leader's attempt to seal off the opening of a recently discovered tunnel built by several young men in the community. Proponents of the tunnel staged a protest in response. The disagreement turned violent and police clashed with members of the community, arresting 12 worshippers for allegedly damaging the underground synagogue beneath the Shabbat Lubavitch headquarters in Crown Heights, New York. Shabbat Lubavitch is one of the most prominent organizations in Orthodox Judaism, and thousands of Hasidic Jews visit the building every year. The origins of the tunnel are unclear, but it was allegedly dug to gain access from a nearby building. Footage shows a group of men blocking efforts to seal off the tunnels, and one video shows a community member emerging from a sewer and running away. The tunnel was reportedly created using primitive tools like pickaxes and sledgehammers. It originated in an abandoned mikvah or ritual bath around the corner and then passed under a nearby women's worship space before eventually breaching the synagogue's main sanctuary. It was discovered last month when neighbors complained about unexplained noises beneath their homes. The young men who brawled with police were charged with criminal mischief, attempted hate crime, attempted criminal mischief, and reckless endangerment. Riots erupted among worshippers when law enforcement tried to shut down the area. And the scandal comes as members of the community fight over who legally owns the property. A Shabbat spokesman condemned the construction of the tunnel, which proponents of claim was aimed at fulfilling the wishes of Rebbe Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who died in 1994 after leading the Shabbat movement for more than 40 years. Eric, thank you for the facts on that fascinating story. We're going to start the spins off with the narrative A provided by Newsweek. The whole situation surrounding the secret tunnels underneath one of the world's most influential Jewish headquarters is quite strange and the New York Police Department has decried the odious actions of the young agitators. 
Yet the NYPD and Chabad Lubavitch headquarters have yet to weigh in on questions from media organizations. A full investigation is needed to provide context into this unusual discovery and heated interaction. Narrative B comes from Rolling Stone. Anti-Semitism continues to rise around the world, and conspiracy theorists are using the latest incident with the Shabbat Lubavitch community to spread demeaning tropes. A communal dispute over a synagogue by a small group of bad actors should never spread general anti-Semitic hate speech. The tunnels built in New York were created by some misguided young men, and extra effort and media coverage must be made to avoid the forthcoming investigation being colored by toxic conspiracies. News out of Afghanistan, where the Taliban has arrested girls for violations of the hijab rules. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, CBS, News 18, Independent, and Associated Press. The Taliban have detained dozens of young women across the Afghan capital of Kabul in the past week, reportedly for spreading and encouraging others to wear a bad hijab. According to a senior Taliban spokesperson, a group of women involved in modeling have been briefly detained and advised in front of their family, adding that none of the women were imprisoned. The arrests were confirmed after multiple women were seen being pulled into police trucks from shopping centers, schools, and markets, allegedly for wearing makeup and violating hijab rules. The Taliban's de facto authorities which are reportedly threatening families and demanding money for the detainees' release, have admitted to carrying out the arrest and punishment of women who violate Islamic values and rituals. A 16-year-old girl has claimed she was lashed on her feet and legs for arguing with the Taliban's morality police, while her father was thrashed for raising immoral girls. During her two-day detention, she alleges the Taliban called her an atheist, for studying English and desiring to travel abroad. While they haven't specified what constitutes a bad hijab, the Taliban in 2022 issued a decree calling for women and girls to follow the organization's dress code, which includes wearing the hijab, a headscarf, and the full-body burqa. Those were the facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Leaflet. Since retaking control of Afghanistan after the U.S. military's withdrawal in August of 2021, the Taliban have expedited their war against women. Their so-called dress code is inherently discriminatory, amounts to gender persecution, and violates women's fundamental rights, including freedom of opinion and expression. The latest operation in Kabul just intends to crack down on women and girls still bravely working in sectors like health and primary education. The Times of India is going to follow that up with the establishment critical narrative. Contrary to Western propaganda, the Taliban respect and protect women and are punishing a limited few who are attempting to pollute young minds and create divisions in Afghan society by improperly wearing the Islamic headscarf. Ironically, the wearing of a hijab is being decontextualized and misrepresented by the West which treats the rights of women in Afghanistan differently than the rights of women elsewhere in the world. Metaculus has a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say there's a 47% chance that Taliban-controlled Afghanistan will be used as a base for anti-NATO terrorism by 2026. A UN official expresses concern over the World Health Organization's Trans Health Panel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, the World Health Organization, and The Telegraph. 
Reem Al-Salem, the UN Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women and Girls, has accused the World Health Organization of taking a one-sided pro-medicalizing position on the issue of transgender health care. Referring to the WHO's recently established 21-person Committee on Trans Health Guidelines, Asalem said the panel contained, quote, significant unmanaged conflicts of interest. The WHO, which is a UN agency, is inviting the 21-member panel to its headquarters next month to hold a discussion focused on transgender treatments, as well as the, quote, legal recognition of self-determined gender identity. Asalem said that those whose views differ from transgender activist organizations do not appear to have been invited such as experts from European public health authorities who use an evidence-based and consequently cautious approach to youth gender transitions. She further claimed that the panel lacked voices against medicalizing youth and protecting female-only spaces. She took particular issue with the WHO's counsel from the Global Action for Trans Equality, which has concluded that, quote, improved access to legal gender recognition is a required intervention. To balance the panel, she said it should include, quote, trans-identified individuals, detransitioners, and parents of youth who were diagnosed with late-onset gender dysphoria. Alongside Asalem, a group of clinicians from Ireland and the UK, dubbed the Clinical Advisory Network on Sex and Gender, have claimed there's a lack of evidence to support the efficacy of gender-affirming medical and surgical interventions in children or adults. Meanwhile, the WHO has said it encourages public feedback and that its, quote, guidelines are always based on balancing of available evidence, human rights principles, consideration of harms and benefits, and inputs of end users and beneficiaries. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. Our spin's going to start with a right narrative provided by the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. The WHO has no care for the safety of biological women or people caught up in the gender dysphoria diagnosis frenzy. None of the 21 so-called experts on this panel have any intellectual diversity. In fact, their intellectual conflicts of interest are likely also financial conflicts of interest, as academic and activist work is typically tied to investment or salaries. Beyond that, these panels have been documented calling for medical transitions of children and have called non-medical solutions conversion therapy. All they care about is pushing a political agenda, not helping people. The World Health Organization has a left narrative. The WHO is a leading international health body, so accusations of bias are themselves uninformed and politically motivated. This panel has not only been vetted, but has been carefully curated to include experts from both the medical and non-medical world. The goal of this coalition is to discuss how to provide global health care to marginalized communities in a safe and scientifically informed manner. Evidence of this is shown through the WHO's honest and transparent publication of the panelists and their resumes. Our last story today are the results of a scientific study that a new blood protein test could detect 18 types of cancer. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, The Telegraph, and BMG Oncology. Researchers at the U.S. biotech firm Novelna have created a blood protein test that can identify 18 early-stage cancers. While blood tests have been used previously for monitoring and early detection, Experts say this test could potentially be a game-changer with 93% accuracy in males and 84% accuracy in females. The study, which tested the blood of 440 cancer patients and 44 healthy people, 
also found that cancer protein signals were potentially gender-specific, which the researchers believe could lead to separate tests for males and females. It's also said to be more sensitive than the Galeri test, which is being tested by the UK's National Health Service, or the NHS, and uses cancer DNA in the blood to detect 50 cancers. The team also said their localization panels consisted of 150 proteins and were able to identify the tissue of origin of most cancers in more than 80% of cases. After finding that most of all the plasma protein levels were low, the team also concluded that it's important to focus on low-level proteins to uncover precancerous and early-stage tumors before they cause significant damage. While the researchers are hopeful that their findings could reshape screening guidelines, they also acknowledge that it was based on a small sample size, which means more studies consisting of larger groups of people will be necessary. One skeptic, Dr. Holly Lumenskrop of Ohio State University, also noted that there are several problems that need to be addressed before such early detection screenings can reach the wider public. Adam, thanks for the facts. Novelna has our first spin. It's Narrative A. The results of this study show that Novelna has created the ultimate breakthrough cancer diagnostic test. Not only does it offer more than 80% accuracy, but it will be 90% more affordable than other cancer test products. The average person who typically has to dig deep into their pocket just to know if they're sick may soon have easy access to life-saving diagnostics. We're going to spin that into a narrative B provided by Nature. While diagnostic tests have undoubtedly gained more popularity and shown significant progress in recent years, societal views on whether or not to get tested are still holding back certain countries from reaping the benefits of these scientific achievements. In the UK, for instance, the general public still worries about wasting their general practitioner's time, which leads to later diagnoses and worse health outcomes. The nerds of Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that the mean five-year relative survival rate of all cancers for both sexes in the U.S. will exceed 75% by April of 2029. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, January 11th, 2024. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Verity Podcast.